This week on The Sport Blokes. On this week's show, Jimmy and the Heat fight back against LA, the Aussie women's cricket team closing on history, worst case scenario time in Tassie, and a cracker of a week one in the AFL finals. Let's go. Stewie, as we do at the top every week, and it's been another big one in not just the world of sport. It really has. What caught your attention, and what'd you miss? Well, mine follows on a little bit from yours last week. I actually noticed a five-part series on Netflix called The Playbook, which looks at the coaching journey and influence of five top-level coaches. So you've got Doc Rivers, who we'll talk about a bit more in the basketball segments, uh, Jill Ellis, who coached the USA women's soccer team to the last two World Cup titles, Jose Mourinho, who's obviously had tremendous success at a number of sides. You look at places like Chelsea, Real Madrid, Inter Milan, even Porto in Portugal, where he was actually born. Uh, it also looks at Patrick Muratoglu, who's coached Serena Williams since 2012, and former WNBA All-Star Dawn Staley, who's the coach of the Women's USA basketball team. Uh, she actually holds a 72.8% winning record with Temple in South Carolina. But what makes this even more impressive, and I did a little bit of research on her, her first six years of coaching at Temple were actually while she was still playing in the WNBA. Wow. So she played for Charlotte and Houston in the WNBA. And for those who don't know, Temple University is in Philadelphia. So it's a pretty decent trip up to Philadelphia from Charlotte or Houston. And she was sort of flying back and forward to, to coach them. Absolutely incredible. Yeah, crikey. How about yourself? Yeah, well, for me, it was actually the test on Channel 7, which I really enjoyed and was funny, interesting, uh, you know, every range of emotions you can expect. But unfortunately, what I realized halfway through is that it was actually a ridiculously gutted, abridged version of an eight-part series. Now, I knew it was on Amazon Prime, like, who has money to pay for all the bloody streaming sources? So I, I, I hoped I'd get to it eventually, maybe with a free trial or something. And I might need to do that now because I don't think a two-hour special will do an eight-part series justice. I couldn't um, agree more. There were times when they would start on day one and then a minute later they're on day five. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Very weird. Yeah. And and in our group chat, you mentioned how they reenacted the, the winning wicket at the end, yeah. which was pretty funny. Spectacular. So, and you're like, Mitch Marsh, like for all the shit that Mitch Marsh gets from pretty much anyone outside of... Victoria! Well, I was going to say anyone outside of WA, like he's a real larrikin and, and you do often hear guys talk about the value he brings in the change yeah. room and, you know, that sort of thing. But funnily enough, I actually went to the fifth test last year. One of our best mates won a tipping competition during the World Cup that got him tickets. I was lucky enough that he invited me. So it was really interesting. Like all the memories came flooding back about the Ashes, which I watched a lot of. But that fourth test where we retained the Ashes, we boarded while the test was on, boarded our plane to England or well, to Dubai first, wherever it was, uh, while, while the test was still going on. So we didn't actually know who won until we landed. So we didn't know if that fifth test we were going to was going to be a dead rubber or what it was going to be. And as it turned out, we had already reclaimed by then, which is just as well, because that fifth test didn't go too well for us. It's pretty poor, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, we, and I've got to say, it reminds me of another story. So when we caught the tube to the match the first day we went, we're in our Aussie gear and we've got our shirts and hats and flag and whatever so you, you can see us from a mile away amongst all the palms and we get on the tube and you know there's good banter and everyone's nice and everything and there's this old codger sitting to the left of me the entire tube trip doesn't say a word and just at the end he pulls out this tiny bit of sandpaper 
Oh, uh, Jesus. Uh, he, he really saved it. His timing was impeccable. But um, like, actually, I said g'day to Freddie Flintoff at the end of that fifth test. I just happened to bump into him at the end. So uh, we And we got into members when we were there. So, yeah, good times. What did you miss, mate? I missed a lot of the first half of Game 2 of the NBA Finals and the third T20i between the Australians and New Zealand, which probably didn't quite go to plan for the Aussies, but still would have been nice to see it. I did catch up on a lot of sport this weekend, though, yeah, so I'm pretty, too, pretty darn happy. How about yourself, Nate? Yeah. I, I missed the uh, end of the Waffle Grand Final, unfortunately, which oh, is a bit of a shame because it was, was a beauty. cracking finish. Now, my team didn't win. When I say my team, I couldn't name more than a handful of players, so... <laughs> Uh, yeah, so it's a shame because it was a real cracking game of footy, so by all accounts. We actually tried to get tickets, but when we couldn't get tickets, I made other arrangements. <laughs> you just ignored the game. Well, I didn't ignore the game. I saw bits <laughs> of it. And I, I actually saw more of the Colts grand final when Subi absolutely smashed Claremont. But uh, yeah, yeah, maybe get my hands on that one. Should we get into the news roundup, should we? Yeah, Nathan, I believe you've got a bit of an update on the, the finish to the Stanley Cup. Yes, we do. So we have a winner, and I happen to see the final period. Tampa Bay won their second ever Stanley Cup, defeating the Dallas Stars four games to two in the end. Uh, Dallas had a bit of a shaky way in, in the first round. They needed seven games to beat Colorado. Then they got past Vegas easily in five. Tampa Bay, on the other hand, had a much easier run in, I would say. 4-1 against Boston, then 4-2 against the Islanders, New York. Uh, so well done to Tampa Bay. It was a good little, that final, it was a pretty frantic final term. The stars were absolutely peppering those goals, but, uh, goalkeepers win Stanley Cups. They do. Goal tenders, I believe they call them. Oh, do they? Well, there you which go. remind me of chicken tenders, which reminds me I didn't have dinner. Oh. In other news... <laughs> Moving on, utter insanity at the FIA Karting World Championships in Lanardo, Italy, after driver Luca Corberi might have delivered one of the craziest reactions to crashing oh, out man. you'll ever see. Yeah. He was bumped off the track by another driver, but instead of going behind the barriers as he's meant to, he's picked up his bumper and hurled it onto the track at the driver who he felt caused the crash. Considering the speed, if that had connected with his head or something like that, it could have done some massive damage. Well, and not only was it near the driver, there was about five other cars like in very, very close proximity. Well, it actually hit a car too. Oh, there you go, as yeah. Well. yeah. And then he goes and attacks the guy in the sheds afterwards as well. Absolutely ridiculous. People calling for a lifetime ban. What do you reckon? You've seen the footage. Oh, I saw the footage and my immediate reaction was local cops should charge him. Mm. Like, it's that's life and death stuff. That's it. That's not good. Yeah, I yeah they should consider it actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I couldn't Terrible. agree more. It's it's disgusting. Absolutely disgraceful. No place for it. No, not at all. Baseball, baseball. Yeah, so a bit of an update. So they've headed into the playoffs now, and we'll maybe deal with it a little bit more. But I have a few little bits and pieces here. So the Atlanta Braves have won their first playoff game since two thousand and one. Good on them. They were a formidable team in the late nineties, so they're finally back in the winner's circle. On the other side of things, however, the Minnesota Twins have lost their eighteenth consecutive playoff game. Wow. Yeah, not good. And just to put it in a bit of perspective, Houston have won 45 playoff games since Minnesota won their last one. Oh, my God. And that's a lot. 45, like, that's a, that's a lot of playoff games. We're doing playoff yeah, games Yeah, that is here. an absolute You time. know, some of the series are only three games. So there you go. But we'll, we'll talk a little bit more because they are getting to the pointy end of their season too. Nice. Moving on to cycling, Julian Alaphilippe looked a rightful after celebrating too early in the Belgian one-day Liege-Baston-Liege race. Try saying that quickly three mm. times. Closing in on the finish line, he raised his arms off the handlebars in celebration, only for Slovenian Primoz Roglic to put his head down and take the win in a photo finish. Serves him right. You look like a dickhead when you ride without holding the handlebars. Absolutely. Premature celebration. To make matters worse, he actually swerved in front of Swiss rider Mark Hirschi and the other Slovenian in the pack, Tadej Pokagar. 
and he was penalised, relegating him to fifth place. Mm. Oh dear. So even if he hasn't celebrated, he might have still not got the win. Well, if he just put his head down and ridden like a normal person. Oh, was the swerve during the celebration? The swerve was in uh, no. The swerve was in the lead up to that. Yeah, right. But if he just put his head down and gone, yeah. Yep. What a fool. Yep. Finish your race, mate. Yep. It, it reminds me of like premature um, touchdown celebrations when they start like getting a bit funny and then they get tackled. Or there was one, and I wish I could remember his name, where he actually dropped, dropped the, the ball. ball on yeah, the one. Yeah, yeah, a few I think years they ago. returned that for a touchdown. They, they had a oh, pretty decent return yeah, on that. Yeah, I can't remember. I remember seeing it. I can't remember had the a outcome. massive return on that. Anyway. Mm. So, right on cues back on for us, Chewy. Yeah, we've got a couple of footy related right on cues. We'll start off with Daniel Hanabry. So, you gave him a bit of a serve last week as far as saying... Well, well, a bit of a serve's a strong You said he was past. I said he was past. And you were glad that he left and all of that Oh, well, I didn't want his cap space on our (laughs) salary cap. But I also said, all power to him and I hope he goes well and he helped us win a premiership. And he did. Yeah, no, good on him. didn't quite get the 35 touches and two goals that I was hoping for. But but 20 touches and a lot of influence in that match against the Bulldogs. Particularly in the first half. He He was was instrumental. Very, very good. Leading possession getter on the ground at At half-time. And he tailed off a little bit in the second half. But he he certainly did his job. Yeah, he was absolutely gassed by the end of it. But he did really well. And a bit of a long-term one. We've spoken across the season about Mason Cox and how you probably wouldn't be able to play him unless there's a dry sunny day right on cue in the finals though oh, yeah. he kicks three massive goals to spark the pies against the Eagles three and five minutes no less yeah Stewie hates big cocks I do I've got one as well. I said Jimmy Butler, even though Jimmy Butler was playing well and I've been talking up playoff Jimmy Butler, he still needed to step up and he well and truly did in games two and three. Just a little bit. Yeah. yeah but we'll get to that too. Now we did kind of debate like, oh, what do we start with next week? Do we start with the NBA finals because it's the finals or do we start with the AFL? But I think given how exciting the AFL is and how the NBA is potentially fizzing out, we have to go with the AFL to start this week, don't we, Shui? Uh, I'd say so. So I guess we'll go through them in chronological order, hey? Yeah. And our tips started well, and they turned to shit real quick. Well, your, your first tip was very good. Mine, mine was not too bad, and then, yeah, definitely off a cliff from there. So in the first match on Thursday, Port Adelaide 9-4-58, defeated Geelong 5-12-42. You tipped Port by 25, I tipped them by 14. It was a sensational match. What a way to start the finals. And uh, what can you say? Oh, I've got a few things I to know. say. I know. That's why well, I kind of threw that to you there. I, I've got to start by saying, I was a bit miffed that Port weren't considered favourites going into the It was game. surprising. Playing at home, they've won the minor premiership. Yep. I know they got smashed by Geelong a few weeks ago, but anyway, four more scoring shots to the Cats, but just wasteful kicking in front of goal. It just cost them, particularly from Coleman medalist Tommy Hawkins, who had five behinds in what was otherwise a fairly tight game of footy. And an out on the full. And oh, there you go. So he had six misses. Yep. Yep. And that and we, sorry, that's on the back of it was either zero goals four or zero yeah I think it was zero four in his last final two oh, wow. against Richmond. So he's like Paul, so he's, he's had Paul, back he's to George. back yeah he's had back to back shaky he's games. Playoff T we'll have to mm, call him mm, and Coleman medalist too yeah. like all the what all, all yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And that's after he tore Port apart with six goals, 12 score involvements, and nine marks inside 50 in round 12. Yep. So When they won by 10 goals. Absolutely hideous. Tommy Rockcliffe was brilliant in his first final in his career. And after slow starts, the class of Ollie Wines and Travis Boat kind of shone through late. Stephen Mollett was superb against his former side as well. Three really crucial goals, including a beautiful crumbing goal for Port's first, and Brad Ebert kicked two. Brad Ebert was magnificent. Motlop, Motlop was on the fringe of not being selected, and he stepped up. And that was pretty much the difference. Tomahawk missing everything, Stevie Motlop kicking everything. 
Now, I assume that the big finals game from Gary Ablett you spoke about is going to be next week. Well, there's still time. Only 10 touches from Ablett. There's still Probably time. the third most disappointing effort from a Cats player behind Graham Myers 7 and Gary Rowan's 5. Look, I know Jack Stephen hasn't set the world on fire and got omitted, but... I feel like he would have had a greater impact. I'm just saying. Yeah, well, I, and I'm going to keep credit going. to you for sticking on your line. Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, no, fair yeah. enough. Fair enough. Well, we've got to say as well, Dersma was incredibly courageous and got himself knocked out in the third quarter. Mm, that was um, brutal. Absolutely brutal. But they had the win, so he'll have his concussion protocol and he'll be back for the prelim most likely. So you that was good. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that was one of the worst ones I've seen with him sort of copping the hit and then landing on yeah. top of oh, it. Oh, yeah, well. he was out cold for minutes. And Blitzouts is a big guy. Yeah, oh, he he was definitely out cold for a decent amount of time. Pau Pepper was another really good player that you didn't mention on your list there. Yeah, I true. Thought, I thought he played really well as well. There probably weren't too many guys for Port that were bad. No, 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 no. But I feel like it's their year. It kind of it's feeling a bit that way. It does, isn't it? doesn't it? Yeah. It could be a, a replay of the 2004 grand final between Port and Brisbane. You're absolutely right, though, Stewie. It was it was really the inaccuracy that hurt Geelong, and it was a close match. And unfortunately, they they had a couple of times where the clock got away from them, and they they pretty much had a shot on goal. There was a, like an extra second or two left. I think it was in the first and third quarters. Um, I don't know if you recall that. I don't know. Uh, there was a couple of occasions where if the clock had just a few more seconds, they probably would have kicked oh, one more I mean, before the you. end of the quarter. I you know? you, sorry. Yeah, yeah, you. yeah. Moving into our Friday game, Brisbane 10 goals, 969, defeated Richmond 8 goals, 654. We were both off on this one. You tipped them, uh, the Tigers by 14. I tipped Richmond by 21, but fantastic effort by the Lions at home. Yeah, I mean, ordinarily 10 goals, 9 wouldn't really be anything to write home about, but how often would 19 scoring shots be 7 goals, 12 for Brisbane? And if that's the case, it might cost them their first win over the Tigers in 15 outings over 11 years. Mm. And as it turns out, a free trip to the prelim for the first time since 2004. So it almost still seems amazing to me that the Lions only trailed by a goal at quarter time without Lockie Neal having a single touch. Yes, that's right. Yeah. But yeah. I've gone on about this most of the season. The Lions midfield is so stacked that when he's quiet, Jared Lyons, Hugh McLuggage, Jared Berry, these guys just pick up the slack. Daniel Rich was magnificent as he well. He was. He was Started the game superb. off with a bang with that massive goal from outside 50. He really did. Yep. And Charlie Cameron's three goals were electric as well. Maybe a little statement after missing the All-Australian team, I'm not sure. Yeah, no, Charlie Cameron played exceptionally well. And Shea Bolton's was like the best point you'll ever see in your life. Oh, it's funny you say that. That was actually That's a question. That's your next note? Like, oh. That was a question I was going oh, to ask. That was incredible. Incredible. It was a great weekend for goals. It, it was. I mean, Richmond were actually pretty solid late into the second quarter, but it was goals to Cam Rayner, Charlie Cameron, and then Lockie Neal, which I'll ask you about in a second. But they gave Brisbane some breathing space right up until late in the fourth. A contested mark and a goal to Jack Rewalt brought it back to eight, but good old Hugh McLuggage, he'd kicked seven goals 21 for the season up until that point and then snaps a goal with less than three minutes left to all but seal it. Oh, it's a great snap too, yeah. And I have to say, the roar of 30-odd thousand fans at the end of that match might be one of the best sounds of the year. Well, it's, it's funny you mention that. It, both games to kick off the, the weekend felt like real matches, didn't mm, they? Like yeah. They had home crowds, you know, rabid, kind of excited, maybe even helped get the home teams over the line, it's got to be said, which is, you know, yeah. which is fine. They earn their right to be the home teams. Uh, yeah, brilliant. What a way to start. Now, I did have that question about was Shea Bolton snap on the left from the pocket? Oh, it was incredible. Was that the point of the year? Oh, it was incredible. <laughs> which it probably is. Incredible. But my, my real question, though, we often talk about moments in these big games, and that moment just before halftime 
Brisbane up seven. Richmond have the ball inside 50, and Marlon Pickett gets called for a throw. Shea Bolton snaps on goal after the, the whistle and gets a 50-meter penalty. Then there's another one called... Yes. They were, they were undisciplined. And Lockie Neal kicks a goal from 50 to give Brisbane a 13-point lead and all the momentum. Yep. Do you think something like this, going into a break, is more important or a middle of a quarter? Oh, for, yeah, for momentum, it's a, it's, a, it's a heartbreaker. Those sort of things at the end of a quarter will, will kill you. Yep, that's huge. It's like guys hitting a big three. Exactly. That sort of thing, yep. yeah. It's, yep. I, I think, honestly, that was the moment where I felt like Brisbane were actually going to do it. Yeah, yep, yep. You really did. And full credit to Richmond. They never gave up. They fought until the bitter end. But they that that there were a few little undisciplined acts like that. They were a little bit off a little bit at times with their skills, which is a bit uncharacteristic. And, okay, dewy conditions, and that's what we have to look forward to in the next few weeks. Yeah. Um, but, f- you know, full credit to Brisbane. They were magnificent. And, you know, not many people picked them, even though they were at home and they finished higher on the ladder. And they did what, what no one or what many people thought they couldn't do. So, well done to them. Mm. I've got a key question for you, Stewie. Ooh. How ironic would it be if McCluggage was a homebody and McStay loved travelling? <laughs> <laughs> occurred to me during the game. It occurred to me during the game. Oh, no, that is brilliant. <laughs> Couldn't help myself. So McStay borrows the McLuggage. That's right. Yeah, yeah. McStay's <laughs> constantly away, and uh, and McLuggage uh, well, his bags are empty. Well, McLuggage sits, sits on sits on the McPorch right. <laughs> and watches the McCouch. Watches the McWorld go by. <laughs> oh, dear. oh, sensational. <laughs> Uh, speaking of sensational, St Kilda 10 goals, 7, 67, defeated the Western Bulldogs, 9 goals, 10, 64. Stewie tipped the dogs by 22. I tipped them without a margin because we started talking about Dan Hanabry. But you and I did discuss it and I sent you a cheeky SMS. All right, I'll say dogs by 7. So I did have a suspicion yeah. it was going to be a real close one. And it was, but we just had it the wrong way. Once again, inaccuracy hurting the dogs this time. And it did help St Kilda. Yeah, look, ripping game of footy as the Saints won their first final since 2010. Jeez, they made their supporters sweat out every bit of it. They really did, and they led from probably halfway through the second right until the very end, but it never felt like they were home, did it? See, it's funny. I was actually messaging a good mate of ours from high school during the last quarter who is a Saints supporter, and he said, just you wait, there's a fade-out coming and we'll be lucky to win by a really slim margin. And he was spot on. Yeah, well, yeah. So Supporters well, well often played. know their teams, well don't they? Yeah, yep. Look, to me, this game comes down to a couple of things. The contested marks, that was absolutely massive. The Saints won at 21-13. to 13, And the hit-out dominance, the Saints won that 31-9. to 9. Now, And we've got to say, for all our love of Tim English, he was pretty average. Oh, he faded massively. Yeah, yeah. He basically did a Tom Papley in yep. that season where we were giving him all the love of the world. And he's super young. Of course. Super young. Of he's, course. Yeah, he's got a bright future, but now, disappointing. Going back to the hit-out dominance, I know the clearance numbers were pretty similar, but the Dogs have got a magnificent midfield, which we've spoken about in previous episodes. Paddy Ryder and Rowan Marshall's dominance kind of allowed the Saints to neutralize them pretty well. The likes of Caleb Daniel and Bailey Smith were superb, and they got their numbers, but Dan Hanabry, who, as we mentioned, led all possession getters at halftime, Zach Jones, Seb Ross, Jack Steele. Yeah, two former swans. Really, really Hanabry good. and Jones were excellent. Yeah, yeah, really good with ball in hand. And yep. down back, Dougal Howard, and in particular, Nick Caulfield. Their intercept marks were Caulfield so... Caulfield was, was key at times. He had, he had three intercept marks in the space of about 90 and seconds. And timely, yeah. Very yep. timely. Yep. I also thought the impact that Jaron Geary had was huge. Originally, he was put on Caleb Daniel as a bit of a defensive forward. 
but he had four massive contested marks and two big goals to go with the two that King, Membry and Ryder all kicked. Big question, obviously, to come out of it, though. What do you think about the Ben Long incident? Yeah. I mean, I don't think it was more than a week, but it was it was on the edge, wasn't it? You know, It was so hard because usually the match review panel look at the result, and so often you see guys getting rubbed out for periods of time because of the result. It's not a maybe a great example, but just straight off the top of my head, the Andrew Gaff punch to Brayshaw. You, I sometimes wonder if maybe if he'd had a, a slightly stronger chin, maybe he might have only got four or five. Oh, the eggshell skull principle in law, Stewie. There you go. Well, yeah, and you, you sort of wonder though, would he have potentially would Gaff have maybe only got five or six instead of eight? So you, that's kind of the the way I, I usually look at it is the they look at oh the, look what's, it, what's well the you have yeah you have to you have to consider the result, but I think he's unlucky. <laughs> I think he's a little bit unlucky considering how quickly Hunter got up. He played out the game. There's no talk of him having a concussion or anything yeah, like he, that. Yeah, so. after killing the Dockers a couple of weeks ago, though, Hunter was a little bit down, I felt. He was. He yeah, was. Yeah. And look, who knows? It might have had something to do with that incident, but I think he's a bit stiff. Now we have an update here, Stewie. So the Saints unfortunately failed to downgrade Long's bump on McRae from medium impact down to, to low impact. So they've upheld that one match ban for the rough conduct. I believe the Saints will be pretty keen to see whether they can have that overturned. So they probably will take that all the way through to the tribunal. So we will see. I, I've watched the footage so many times now, and I'm really wavering. I, I'm finding it really hard to decide whether or not he should have got a week. I think he probably will get a week, but yeah. it's, a, it's such a shame. Oh, it's a really tough one. Finally, perhaps, well, definitely the biggest surprise of the round. Although I've got to say, Daisy Pierce picked it at the end of the Richmond-Brisbane uh, game when she gave her tips. Collingwood, 12 goals, 476. Defeating the West Coast, 11 goals, 975. Stewie tipped the Eagles by 17. I tipped them by 15. And look, I've got to say, the inaccuracy again hurt the team that lost, among other things. Yes, kind of Go on, tee off. Kind of ironic that I was talking all week about how Brisbane's inaccuracy would cost them. But look, I'm going to battle through this one. I, I still haven't got the salty taste out of my mouth yet. But look, congratulations. It's only been a day. Yeah. Well, look, massive congratulations to the Collingwood Football Club. They were given shit for never leaving Victoria. They've had a really tough year. They've been playing out of hubs for the entire season. Yep. And they played a hell of a match in this one. It's kind of shades of the 2018 Grand Final that I reference so often. I'm sure the Pies will struggle to find too many better non-Grand Final wins than this in their history. Look, I will say this. You mentioned the inaccuracy was huge. I would actually say just as much as that were some of the really unexpected passengers that the Eagles had. Luke Shuey had one of his least impactful games as an Eagle. I was surprised he actually finished with as many as 14 touches. Tim Kelly was pretty much invisible. Tim Kelly was was quiet. Um, Liam Ryan was his usual ball of excitement, and Nick Nat was really good in the ruck contest, but I did actually see him stop chasing a number of times, which is unusual. Um, we got pretty good run from the likes of Gaff and Duggan, but, yeah, it was Collingwood's accuracy. That's pretty much what split the two teams apart. And that first quarter by Mason Cox, you know, the lanky, I think he's six foot eleven ex-college basketball player, kicked three goals in five minutes. And so at the end of the first quarter, it was four goals none to one goal two. Stop reminding me. Well, it did, I mean, I hate to say, but it did it did set the tone. This, and is, this is how Richmond fans feel. Oh, it's incredible. Like, yeah, he, he's done it twice now in a final. And I, I turned... So we went and watched... So the first three games... Watched at home. The last game we watched at the Inglewood, and it was great. Like, it was packed to the brim. You could have cut the tension with a knife. You know, the whole game was seesawing backwards and forwards. Like, it was magnificent. But after he kicked his third one, I turned to my mate next to me, and I said, it doesn't matter if he doesn't get another touch for the rest of the game. 
he has indelibly marked himself in AFL Finals folklore, particularly as a Yankee who never played juniors and all that sort of stuff. He's in the record books forever. People will talk about this for decades to come. Do you reckon anyone's actually ever tried to cut through tension with an actual knife? Oh, I'm sure those ones on Demtel probably can. <laughs> they can cut through everything else. <laughs> Tim Shaw. Yeah. Look, well, yeah, full credit to Coxie. He's now kicked 14 goals to this season. He's one of the best kicks in the game from around 35 to 40 metres out. Anything further than that, he's probably not making it, but he does. And a strong grab. A very, very strong grab. Yeah. Now, one of the things I actually really was impressed with in terms of Collingwood's game plan, and I, I believe they had a better game plan than the Eagles did, they did such a great job of having guys sitting just off the front of the contests. And any time the ball managed to spill out to the front of the contest, they had guys like Trelaw, Pendlebury, Taylor, Taylor Adams. Adams Chris, Taylor Adams was magnificent. Even Chris Mayne, you know, getting in, in front, getting the ball forward. And that's where guys like Mason Cox did their damage early and Brody Meyer checked late. Yep. So I guess season over for West Coast... I think you would say it's a pretty big failure, and we're going to do some ratings on all of the teams once the season's over, but some really tough decisions to make. Jack Petrocelli looks like he's lost a step and, and his confidence. Lewis Jetta seems to have fallen out of favour. Tom Hickey and Nathan Vardy probably even more so. I want to see some young guys like Jared Brander and Bailey Williams, Jared Cameron, Jermaine Jones, these guys given a chance. But I think there's some really, really big questions to be, to be answered by the Eagles, and their list management team have a very, very big few months ahead of them. I agree, and I could say more, but we always struggle for time, so I won't. True. But yeah, no, I, I agree. I do have two questions from this, though. So Brody Grundy sat on the bench with 77 seconds left, clinging to a one-point lead against a fairly dominant Nick Nat, leaving Darcy Cameron, who was in just his ninth game for Collingwood and his tenth career game, to contest the most important centre bounce of the year. Buckley said that Brody Grundy isn't injured or unfit. Are you buying that? Well, I was, I mean, yeah, there was a lot of discussion about it when we were at the pub and I, all I kept saying was, he's got to be injured. He's got to be injured. There must be. But he did He did go back on at the end. So, you know. It's just weird. Like, that is that is the time that Grundy has to be. I know he got smashed by Natanui, but you've still got to have him on there. Yeah. No, that was curious. That was it was a, curious. That was a weird one. Now, a bit of a fun one. There were a couple of, let's say questionable calls. I was going to say, and I'm, you, I'm you've not done play- very well not to bring up the umpires. I'm not playing that card as the reason we lost. That's 100% down to us. Two most notable ones, the non-holding the ball decision against Jamie Elliott on the wing, which led directly to a goal from Will Hoskin Elliott about 10 seconds later, and a really blatant throw with 30 seconds left that was missed. Do West Coast fans get to finally tell the Pies fans to shut up about 20 <laughs> Well, they probably do. The, the, the problem with the throw one is that if you kind of look at the whole field and you look where the umpires were they were completely blind to it so you can't call what you don't see mm. and it's just one of those situations but the holding the ball one I mean that oh was... yeah no the holding of the ball one was there and you know there was one early there was a deliberate out of bounds early called on who was McGovern. it McGovern McGovern oh, I think that was there I think it was there too but it was fucking gutsy and if to the away team in a were, final and there were a couple that, it were, that was gutsy yeah there were a couple that Collingwood maybe could have been penalised for but yeah I I don't have a problem with that one I think that was with those throws like it's easy for us on the telly to kind of cry about them but oh, look, you know the umpires weren't there it's, it's when the umpires are there can I talk about umpires too you've opened the door for me oh jeez so for all my talk of the play on not 15s I counted five of them in the Port Geelong game ah five 
Yeah, that should like be, that's really rare. This actually season. did seem to be a few of them. But of course, again, you know, some of them were called on ones that were probably like twelve and a half meters, you know, and then they were calling marks that were still five meter kicks yeah, that led to shots on goal. Yeah. So even though they were calling it, and I and I do think they must have made it a point of emphasis because there was at least one play on not fifteen in every game of the finals this weekend, and that's. <laughs> I reckon there were rounds where there weren't any. They're listening to us. Well, you know, right on cue. <laughs> so I guess we'll do our tips. Well, maybe we'll start with Collingwood since we just finished with them. So they'll be playing Geelong. Uh, and Collingwood actually had a win in round seven by 22. What do you reckon? Well, yeah, as you mentioned, I mean, they rolled them pretty handily in round seven. But at that stage, we had Collingwood as world beaters. So I feel like Geelong's probably the more likely higher seed to get beaten this week. And I, I, oh, yeah, definitely. But I, I can't imagine Tom Hawkins has two bad games in a row. This is going to be an absolute beauty. For I think it will be another cracker. I would actually like to see them try and isolate Mason Cox like they did against West Coast. And Jordan Degoe has to be the other focal point. He had two goals, but nine touches. It's just not enough for someone like him as an X Factor. I've got the Cats by eight, but with about as much confidence as I had with West Coast winning last week. So. I'll take the Cats by four. Oh, I hope one of us is right, because that will mean an absolute cracker on Saturday night. And then in the other match, now I don't think this one's going to be as close, because sadly, although the Saints had their first finals win in nearly a decade, I think they're going to really struggle next week with a few blokes out. In the corresponding match, St Kilda actually beat the Tigers by 26, but that was way back in round three. There's some really big outs. There's that suspension that we've talked about that will probably happen uh, Jake Carlisle's gone to see the birth of his child, which is completely fair enough. Choosing Bub over Hub. Yes, very good, very good. Um, and then the big one, Paddy Ryder, who did his hammy with, what, maybe five minutes left. And I dare say the game might not have been as close as it was if Ryder had been on the ground at the end. Um, and maybe it was even more. Maybe it was like eight or ten, eight to ten minutes left. Oh, I think it was closer to five. Five, yeah, yeah. okay. But That's a huge out, that Ruckman. And sadly, his first finals win finally, and he doesn't get to play another one this week. It is easy to forget that Paddy Ryder actually did miss the round four clash, though. Okay. And that's got to give St Kilda a little bit of hope. Yeah. Look, both teams will actually probably go into the game with very similar lineups. Rowan Marshall battled Toby Nankervis beautifully in that game, and Ivan Soldo actually missed round four as well. So it's a fairly similar sort of idea. And the Saints actually won the clearances in that match, so they'll need something fairly similar this time around. They really will. Oh, and Brett Ratton actually has a 7-0 record against Damian Hardwick, mm. which is very interesting. Mm. Having said that, though, I think the Tigers will be pissed after the performance they put up this week, and they'll probably bounce back. I've got them by 21. I was going to say 31. Richmond by 31. Okay. I just, I, I don't, I, I, I prove me wrong, but I just can't, with those outs, I can't see the Saints doing anymore, unfortunately. Some quick transactions and other news in the AFL before we get to our other footy code in finals here in Australia, Stewie. Yeah, real quick one. So Brandon Matera has been delisted at Fremantle, and Heath Shaw was actually given his marching orders by GWS. There's talk, though, that he might be given a lifeline by his brother Reese at North Melbourne. Ah, uh, well, I've actually heard that he definitely won't. They've had a chat, and he definitely won't, is what I heard. Oh, yeah, okay. so that might have some speculation, maybe. Yeah, I've heard that they've actually literally already had a chat. Ah, okay. Yeah. Well, speaking of Reese Shaw, there's also rumours that Paul Ruse might be joining him at the Kangas as a mentor. He needs a mentor. He, he does, yeah. And of course, he coached him at, at the Swans. True. So that's a yeah, that's a good match. It's a bit of a no-brainer, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's a great match. Oh, yep. I love Rosie. He's a great mind. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. And then Jesse Hogan's been a bit of a bad boy. Yeah, he's being investigated after returning to Perth and having a female at his place after just one day of his fourteen-day quarantine. Yeah, couldn't wait. And just a couple of other quick little nice footy stories to finish out our our footy. The father-son rule is well known, but the father-daughter rule. 
So, Collingwood and St Kilda, club legends Gavin Brown and Nathan Burke, respectively, have the first ever father-daughter picks. Nice. Tani Brown, the sister of current Magpies, Callum and Tyler, will join the same club her dad captain and played 254 games for, of course, winning the 90 Premiership. And Alice Burke has committed to the Saints, where her father, Nathan, with the famous... The helmet. Yeah, the famous helmet... Played 323 games, and to make it kind of interesting, he'll actually be coaching against her because he's the coach of the dogs. Of course he is, yeah, true. And then the other interesting one is Yapoon made an incredible 89 consecutive wins on Saturday. The small club in central Queensland made history, winning 89 straight when they hosted Boyne Island, Tannum Sands, Saints in the AFL, Capricornia Grand Final at Swan Park. The Swans took out the Premiership easily 10 10 70 to 139. 89 wins in a row. Oh, it was a tight one for probably <laughs> for probably the opening bounce. It's a cracker. I actually can't wait until the next generation gets the the mother son rule. Oh, whoa! <laughs> you just, you that, just blown my mind. Doesn't that just blow your mind? Thinking you that, have blown that, my mind. That, could that actually, would be amazing. That could be a thing. That could be amazing. Didn't Erin Phillips and her partner have a have a child? That's incredible. All right. Or even the mother daughter rule. There's, yeah, yeah. Well, there's so many things. The permutations. <laughs> so many things. In the NRL, Stewie, the Penrith Panthers, top of the ladder, 29, but very close, 28, Sydney Roosters. Yeah, look, this is great. I actually managed to watch all the highlights and a few extended highlights on all the games this weekend, which is something I haven't done in a while. I actually quite enjoyed it. So the Roosters surprisingly jumped out to a 10-0 lead in the first nine minutes of this game, but it took only another 12 minutes for the game to be back on level peggings. And after a treble from Nathan Cleary and another from Stephen Crichton, the Panthers reeled off 28 straight points to lead by 18. James Tedesco and Josh Morris scored to bring it back to a six-point margin, but Cleary cleverly kicked a field goal to extend the margin back to seven. Angus Crichton managed a try about a minute later to set up a really hectic finish, but Luke Cleary's field goal was blocked. The Panthers managed to run out the clock. Real cracking game, though. Another game not as cracking. Canberra Raiders 32, Cronulla Sharks 20. Yeah, six tries to three for the Raiders. Saw them home fairly comfortably, but there was a massive talking point in this. The Sharks weren't given much of a chance, but they found themselves up 14-10 in the second half. About 46 minutes in, Andrew Fafita conceded a ruck infringement penalty about 20 metres out from the line, and Sharks captain Wade Graham starts walking towards the referee to call for a captain's challenge. Jack Whiten, however, took a really quick tap and practically waltzed over the line for a try. Cronulla were pissed, but apparently there's this new rule that states that you can't challenge a ruck infringement, so technically the play on was correct. Ooh. Yeah, very interesting That's time That's heartbreaking that in a final. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Raiders absolutely ran rampant from there, though, so although it's probably considered a turning point, the Raiders were far too strong in this. And in the Storm and Eels game, it wasn't without controversy as well. Melbourne winning 36 to Parramatta 24. Yeah, quite a clinical performance of very high quality, actually, from the Storm. This was the seventh win in finals from seven starts for the Storm against the Eels. The Eels actually scored in the first minute of the game and actually added a second via a stunning try. They went 70 metres after a knock-on, but the Storm absolutely roared back into the game. Two late tries in the first half and another four in the second half to actually win it pretty easily in the end. Blake Ferguson had a try of his own for Parramatta in the second half, but five minutes later he botched a kick from behind his own try line and Jesse Bromwich scored from the ensuing scrum. To cap it off for Ferguson, he actually had to be helped from the ground after getting crushed under Justin Olam a few minutes later. And adding insult to injury, Ryan Pappenhausen scored after Cameron Munster broke through the lines following that injury. Yeah, that controversy, Stewie, uh, the cramp that Vonovalo seemed to get at a convenient time. Uh, Shifted of, momentum. 
Yeah. God, we've got one of those in the tennis later on as well. Yeah, well, and they're known to happen in the soccer too. Seems fin- to wait for it. Finally, Adam O'Brien uh, helped get the Newcastle Knights into the finals for the first time since 2003. A very good job for a first-time coach in really difficult circumstances. But nonetheless, Russell Crowe will be happy. South Sydney Rabbitohs 46, defeating the Newcastle Knights 20. Yeah, similar to the Panthers and Roosters game, the Knights actually jumped out to a really nice 14-0 lead early after a stunning try to Heimel Hunt and another to Bradman Best. What a great name, by the way. I wonder if he'll have to change his name to Smith Best at some stage. (laughs) But after a penalty to Kalen Ponga, the Rabbitohs just put the foot down. They scored eight straight tries as part of a 46-point unanswered run. Wow. But there was a consolation try in the 80th minute, so it wasn't all bad. Damien Cook was utterly brilliant in this game. He set up numerous tries with these subtle ball fakes, and his solo effort to go 80 metres for their eighth try was just unbelievable. To have that much left in the tank that late in the game, I mean, I couldn't do that at the start of the game, let alone at the end. So the Rabbitohs just look so quick and so strong, and that, that 46 points is actually a record score for the Rabbitohs in finals as well. So. Mm. Um, just to quickly sum it all up, 235 total points in the first week. It's the highest scoring first week since the NRL went to a top eight finals format. An amazing effort. Wow. So this Friday, the Roosters and Raiders will play. And then on the Saturday, we've got the Rabbitohs and the Eels. Don't ask us who will win. I'll just go for the Raiders and the Rabbitohs because they looked amazing this weekend. Oh, look, just to be a little bit different, I'll pick the Sydney teams. Roosters and Rabbitohs. Keep Be- Russell Crowe happy. Beautiful. Fighting around the world. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great South Park reference. Uh, some NFL updates, Shui? Yeah, Jesus, a fair bit going on, isn't there? There really is, and there's actually some things from last week that I didn't mention. The difficulty is we record on a Monday night and come home from work, have dinner, and then get straight into it. So I don't have a lot of time to kind of digest the day's events, which also meant that I haven't seen Game 3 of the NBA Finals. But anyway, we'll get there. Um, huge one last week. Tyrod Taylor had a punctured lung. Now, that's pretty... Happens. Yeah, it's not a very nice thing. It's even worse when the doctor who is giving you treatment causes it. Is this the same doctor that Michael Jackson had? <laughs> it may as well have been. Jesus. So yeah, so so that was that was a terrible one from last week. A nice one from last week. The Washington Cleveland uh, game had, was the first game ever to feature female coaches on both teams and a female referee. So that was a really nice story there. Mm. I talked about the Chiefs and Ravens being what I was amped for. Unfortunately, it wasn't as good a game as I'd hoped. The Chiefs got out to an early lead and pretty much maintained it the whole way in the battle of the MVPs from the last two seasons, Patrick Mahomes and Lamar Jackson. Speaking of Mahomes, he's the fastest to 10,000 yards passing. Yeah, it's crazy. He just continues rewriting these record books. He did it in just his 34th game for an average of just under 295 yards a game. Actually managed to do it two games quicker than Hall of Famer Kurt Warner, who did it in 36. Matt Stafford, third at 37 games, so still a very good effort from him. He still has over 67,000 to go, though, to pass Drew Brees, who currently leads Tom Brady by about 3,000 yards. And who's still playing. And they're both still playing. It, it's, got, it's got to be said, though, that it's... Just, it's. I mean, look, Mahomes is amazing. He is the face of the league now, basically. But it is a sign. When Matthew Stafford appears that high on the list, it's a sign of the modern game. Because Stafford hasn't won shit. So, you know, so so stats can be a little bit misleading at times. Never. Um, Never. They're always important. But no, no. But Mahomes was magnificent outperforming Lamar Jackson. And get this is a crazy stat. So Lamar Jackson is 21-1 and against the rest of the league. He's 0-3 against Mahomes. 
So he must see Mahomes in his nightmares, I reckon. We talked about Mahomes' massive new contract that he received earlier in the year. Ravens defensive tackle Kalei Campbell, who also probably has nightmares uh, about him, said, They don't give that guy half a billion dollars for no reason. He just made play after play. You've got to give him respect. And absolutely you do. True, true. Russell Wilson, another former Super Bowl MVP in his own right, has tied Peyton Manning for most touchdowns through four games with 16. He is absolutely an MVP form once again. The Bears have become the first team to win two games in a season when trailing by at least 15 points in the fourth quarter. They did it in the first three games of the season. It's never been done before. Wow. They only needed three games to do it. Just on that Russell Wilson thing, I did also see that Tom Brady became the oldest guy to have five touchdowns in a game. Yeah, look, it's got to be said that he's getting some good chemistry with Mike Evans and that Tampa Bay team is looking decent. Yeah. Rob Gronkowski, maybe not doing as much as some would have hoped, but he's been out of the game for a while. It doesn't surprise me too much. But yeah, no, those those Buccaneers are looking all right. Uh, COVID stuff as well. Uh, yeah, well, I've buried the lead here. So so really, there's been some COVID positives that have affected a number of teams, a number of games, the schedule. And look, we and, talked... And your fantasy team. Well, uh, kind of. Uh, he's on my bench, but uh, I'll get there. But but we, we talked about um, how well the NBA's done with COVID. And we also talked about how the Tampa Bay Lightning won the NHL Stanley Cup. They did not have one positive test across any hockey player. So that's a bloody good effort. Like, we talk about how good the NBA was with only a handful, but that's a bloody good effort. The NFL, on the other hand, and it is a contact sport, and, you know, um, maybe some of them have been flouting the rules a little bit, and I think there's more to come out of it. Maybe. But the intended Sunday game between the Tennessee Titans and the Pittsburgh Steelers never went ahead because the Titans had some COVID positives. That game will now be in week seven, and this week has become a buy for both teams. And by the way, early buyers suck. Do you think this is going to be the last game of the season and it's going to mean everything like the Essendon-Melbourne game? Oh, <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> We've got to go back to that. Well, that's been moved to round seven, so not, not uh, as late not in the round season. round 17. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but you know, um, Henry was my number one pick, so that's another player that my fantasy, you know, was affected. I won't know till tomorrow if the Monday night game is played if I won or not. But anyway, so first defensive back Greg Mabin tested positive on the Thursday before the game. Then on the Saturday, outside linebackers coach Shane Bowen tested positive, meaning he didn't coach against Minnesota last weekend. Now, Minnesota also had to close their facility because they played the Titans last week. Now, it doesn't seem to have been as bad for them as far as positives are concerned but it did knock him around a bit. Three days later, eight more personnel tested positive, three players and five staff. And then the postponement came the next day when another two players tested positive. So now it's up to 20, the last I heard, throwing their game next week now into jeopardy because they need to have enough blokes to get on the paddock. Jeez, it's a good thing there's no COVID in America. <laughs> Topical. The fact that they had positive tests on six consecutive days means that the league is looking into whether or not they breached protocols and whether or not they've been following the rules. They are adamant. One source um, observed saying, however, this isn't a failure of protocols. It's a failure to follow the protocols. So it's a bit of he said, she said. The Titans say they did nothing wrong and it's just the nature of America at the moment. Some league sources are saying maybe not. Do you think they could shut it down? Well, I I mean, they've done really well. I mean, the baseball had a couple of outbreaks and that still went ahead. So Mm. to be honest, they've done better with it than I thought they would over there in the States. So maybe, I don't know. But yes, Cam Newton, uh, in less diabolical but inconvenient news, Cam Newton tested positive for the Patriots, meaning that their game that was originally slated for last night will now be Tuesday. Oh dear. So, so there we go. The effect of this is that the NFL have also issued a memo with enhanced protocols to teams 
to follow after exposure to the coronavirus, including two daily tests. PPE and face masks must be worn at all time by all players on the practice field, and gloves must be worn by everyone except quarterbacks on their throwing hand. And is there a 10-yard penalty for face mask? Uh, well, there's always a 10-yard penalty for face mask. <laughs> <laughs> a second missed test result results in a one-game suspension. Any player who misses a daily test without authorization during the bye week must have five negative tests before they can re-enter a team facility. And they're even talking about draft sanctions. So that's pretty big. That is big. Yeah. So there we go. Quickly in soccer before you get to the EPL, Shui, the Matildas have hired Tony Gustafsson as their head coach. The 47-year-old Swede was the assistant coach of the USA Women's World Cup team in 2015 and 19 when they won it. So good little scalp there, by the way. Yeah, not bad at all. Not bad at all. So moving across to the EPL, look, there's a lot of stuff to talk about, but we'll try and condense this down because I'm aware that we're already running a little bit over time. But Always. So we'll start with Tottenham Hotspur and, and starting a crazy day in the Premier League. So Man United hosted Spurs and they had a penalty within 30 seconds to take the lead, but Spurs scored the next six. Wow. Including doubles to Son and Harry Kane. Anthony Martial was sent off for United in the 26th minute after one of the most piss-weak red cards you will ever see. It, he basically stroked the guy's face and he fell over, writhing in pain, which yeah, is typical unfortunately soccer. typical. Yeah. Um, this was actually only the third time in the Premier League era that United have conceded six goals as well. But Aston Villa decided to one-up Spurs they by sure handing did. defending champions oh. Liverpool their asses wow. in a 7-2 thrashing. Ollie Watkins made the most of a howler of a pass from standing Liverpool keeper Adrian in the first few minutes, and his hat-trick was completed within 40 minutes. Three of the seven goals actually came via deflection, so a little bit unlucky. But amazingly, Villa only enjoyed 30% of the possession and completed less than half the passes Liverpool did, mm. but had four more shots than Liverpool, and they were just clinical in front of goal. First time Liverpool have conceded seven goals since 1963. Is that a premiership hangover, Stuart? I mean, you could argue it is. They certainly haven't started the season in amazing form. They only just got past Leeds. They only just got past Leeds. They've absolutely been smashed here as well. So, yeah, it's, it's quite possible they are struggling a little bit. Mm. And then to round out a crazy day, Leicester City suffered their first loss of the season to West Ham, losing 3-0. Another game where a side only had 30% of the possession but won, Leicester couldn't produce a single shot on target in the whole match. Wow. So Everton now sit atop, undefeated through four games. Aston Villa now three from three as the only other undefeated side. Manchester United sitting just two spots above the relegation zone at this stage. I know it, <laughs> early days. I know it's very early, but it's good <laughs> it's, to see. It's fun to dream. It is fun to dream. And now, what made Stu say bloody hell? The bloody hell this week comes from Iranian footballer Issa Alekasir, who was banned just hours before his Persepolis team's Asia Champions League semi-final on Sunday morning due to a goal celebration from their game against Paktikor from Uzbekistan. He's been doing this for quite a while, where he grabs the outside corner of his eyes and drags them to, to almost create the slant-eyed gesture that's been used as a racist form against parts of Oriental Asia. He was exiled from all football-related activity for a period of six months and fined $10,000, which to me seems just a little bit excessive. Lekasir has claimed previously that the gesture is actually a tribute to his nephew, but if the Asian Football Confederation has taken issue with this celebration, surely they should issue him with an official first and final warning based on how it could be interpreted. Yeah, you would have thought so, jeez. And if he repeats it, then a ban's appropriate. Yeah, surely. I mean, it's obviously it's not something that's appropriate, even if the nephew thing is true, which is probably bullshit. Perception is reality, but you've got to give a guy 
a smaller penalty and a warning. You surely. don't just you don't just knock him out for six months, surely. And and to me, the the timing just seems a little bit on the nose. So I'm not really sure about this. I mean, we don't know his background. Maybe he's a serial offender. Who knows? Yeah. Look, we've seen a lot of pretty nasty gestures in sports over the years, and we don't have time to go through all of them. No, I don't and think we, we even want to. Don't really want to give them no. the time of day. No. But I think this is all just a little bit of miscommunication. So for costing this Iranian star player half a year of his prime, and the fact that Google Translate doesn't translate Persian into Romanized characters, all I can say is a bunch of squiggly lines that roughly translate to bloody hell. <laughs> bloody hell. Well, sure, we've got a, the NBA finals are on, so we've got to start with the biggest news of all. Tasmania have a new team name. <sighs> we've officially arrived at that point. <laughs> we all dreaded that this was a possibility. But we didn't believe it could possibly win. It was kind of like when Trump won the 2016 election. I'm using inverted commas. Cause well, we're... Electoral College, yeah. Mm. yeah. Yes, the Tasmania Jack Jumpers are officially the newest team in the NBL. Do you know what the most frustrating part of this is for me, though? Their mascot is going to look awesome. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. He'll be like an angry version of, angry Z, Ant. of, of Z from the, the movie Ants. Yeah. From what I've seen, their logo and their jerseys actually look really cool. Yeah, they're not, they're not terrible. What is frustrating, though, is just the name. It's seven syllables long. It does not flow. Having a two-word team name is hard enough, but when it's lengthy like that, it just sounds forced. Can you imagine doing chants? Let's go, Jack Jumpers. Let's go. It'll be like that. Jack Jumpers. And actually, it could work. Mm, But that's why a team like the Boston Red Sox works, because it flows. Random side note, because, you know, we love tangents. Of course. The word Sox, the S-O-X, was actually previously adopted from the Chicago White Sox because newspapers needed a headline-friendly form of stockings. Because stockings wins in large type didn't fit in a column. Wow. So they abbreviated it. Anyway. Well, and, and also it's called the World Series because the newspaper that sponsored it was called News of the World. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, there so there you go. Journalism was, impacting on sport. Yeah. yeah. But... That's why the eight-syllable Cincinnati Kelly Killers, who I've mentioned on a previous episode, sounds even worse. I stand by it. I will refer to them as the Hobart Tassie Devils. Oh, I've got a theory here, Stewie. Go for it. I think this has got a bit of Bodie McBoatface written all over. <laughs> no, I'm serious. It does. I'm serious. The minute the minute it was one of the possible things to vote for, I reckon some people intentionally voted for it, just as people did with Bodie McBoatface as a bit of a joke or a protest vote. So the Tassie McTaz faces, but I honestly, I think that's, I think uh, that's what I attribute here. You're probably right. To and be and NBL, like for all the good you've done, and you're a great league, and you're really, you know, it's it's a, done spectacularly well in the last few years. But the team names suck. They suck. At least Andrew Bogut liked it. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, no, yeah. yeah. And, uh, no know, one liked it. Do you know what? No least, one liked it. Least, Shane Hill, or, look all over Twitter. No one liked it. At least we finally found something we agree with Andrew Bogan on. <laughs> oh, you know, I agree with some of what he says. He is controversial. I don't mind that. In NBA news, Stewie, the coaching carousel continues. Doc Rivers was shown the door by the Clippers. He had two years left on his deal. And within a few days, he's already got a new job. Five-year contract with the Philadelphia 76ers. I quite like this signing, actually. I mean, look, Doc's gone through the ringer a little bit in recent times, including by us, for his propensity to lose 3-1 leads. I was actually listening to the ringer a bit earlier, though, and they made a really good point. You've still got to be pretty good to get that 3-1 lead. Oh, of course, of course. Now, I haven't fact-checked this one, Stewie, but I think also the five best Clippers seasons were coached by Doc Rivers. It's just that unfortunate record of, what, 3-8 and eight in closeout games or mm. whatever it is. But he's yeah. never, never been swept, either. Yeah, well, Including those Orlando teams that weren't And he's won, a, he's won a championship. Yeah, so... 
Look, I think he'll actually help them sign some pretty decent free agents, kind of similar to what the Lakers did this year. And he might actually be able to find some lineups that work for that Albatross contract Al Horford signed. What I'm keen to see, though, is what sort of offensive sets he runs. Philly's D is fine. In fact, the only thing that Philly doesn't do that well defensively is force turnovers. They were, I think, 23rd in the league this year for them. I will mention they were last in defensive rating of the 16 playoff teams this year, but Ben Simmons obviously is a huge part of that. He didn't play a minute. That's right. But I feel like guys like Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons will actually listen to him because of his resume. He's won a title, as you mentioned. 34 combined years experience playing and coaching the NBA. Yet he feels like he's only 40 years old. <laughs> kind of has that feeling like he's... Well, and he commentated for a while there too. Yeah. I like the signing for the 76ers. Apparently they were very close to getting D'Antoni. It's amazing, you know, the domino effects. You know, that would have been a terrible signing. I do too. I think this is a much better signing. I think he's a much better fit for the team. I'm actually optimistic. I still am not convinced that Simmons and Embiid can coexist. But given one year under Doc, who knows? Reevaluate. And Tobias Harris had his best year playing for Doc Rivers at the Clippers. Speaking of coaches, a bit of controversy in Brooklyn, Stewie. Yeah, I'm really concerned about things in Brooklyn. So they've signed Steve Nash, and it was reported that Kyrie Irving had said, I don't really see us having a head coach. KD could be a head coach. I could be a head coach. Basically referring to this as a collaboration. Those sorts of comments don't really fill me with any confidence that these two are going to be coachable. Kyrie Irving is a cancer. Well, yeah, I mean, look, we've already heard comments that, that Irving's hard to play with. He's a chemistry killer. I really worry for Steve Nash here. And to make matters worse, he also went on in the same conversation to say that playing with Kevin Durant is the first time in his career he's had a teammate he trusts to take the final shot. He claimed it wasn't a thinly veiled shot at LeBron, but only Kobe Bryant, Joe Johnson, and Michael Jordan have more buzzer-beating game winners than LeBron over the course of their careers. And when LeBron and Kyrie played together, LeBron was better in crunch time. They've looked at the stats. Yeah, so I believe it was on Kevin Durant's podcast, actually. It was. He, yeah, it was. Yeah. Oh, look. I mean, they're super villains, aren't they? Really, yeah. the two of them. And when when he when he said he wanted to leave Cleveland a few years ago and listed San Antonio as one of his preferred destinations, I was like, not with a fifty foot clown pole. I do not want that guy in a Spurs uniform. Thank Christ he never came. Yeah, yeah he's yeah. a cancer, mate. Yeah. He is no thank you. I will also just uh, clarify that Paul Pierce is actually tied with LeBron for buzzer beating game winners, but. Another LeBron. spectacular player. But LeBron's got plenty of time left to climb. <laughs> anyway. He'll play forever, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then a sad one with Delonte West, Shui. Yeah, he's probably best known as the teammate that supposedly boned LeBron James's mum, but he's he was a pretty... <laughs> not hit. even a joke. Well, no, sadly not. He was a pretty... And, well, hit. actually, and you said, sorry, but you said to me previously that there's a big theory as to that's why LeBron played really badly in that postseason. So yeah. it's interesting. Exactly. But no, look, he was a pretty handy role player. He averaged nearly 10 points and four assists a game across eight seasons with the Celtics, the Sonics, the Cavs, and the Mavericks. Unfortunately, he's been battling bipolar disorder and an addiction to alcohol and embalming fluid, of all things. Oh, yikes. So it's really taken him down a dark path. Jeez, I didn't know that. His friend Lenora Cole's been looking after him, and she's an absolute angel, this woman. But it appears that Mark Cuban's finally stepping in to help get Delonte the help that he needs, and that is great news. Cuban said he's going to take care of the cost required to get what help he needs, which is amazing and not really a big thing for Cuban because no. he's obviously got so much money. But I just wanted to really say out loud that if anyone listening to this is going through anything, don't push your Seek circle help. away. Absolutely. Do not push your circle away. Absolutely. Help them to help you. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. No one is alone. Um, and Delonte played for that St. Joe's team that went undefeated until the national championship against North Carolina, if I'm not mistaken. The one with Sean May. I believe. I'll take your word for it. I never yeah. got, never really got into the college. I watched much, a yeah. lot of college ball back, back in, in those, those days. days yeah. yeah. Yep. 
And then finally, Stewie, the NBA season next year could interrupt the postponed Olympics. Yeah, Adam Silver's actually said that it's very unlikely that the season would stop for the Olympics if they go ahead. Obviously, that's a big if, but it could happen. These impact things really greatly. Obviously, the USA team would be the worst hit. I mean, they would have to field presumably some sort of G League team or college college players, which in the history we know doesn't go particularly well. Not these days. But it impacts a number of other countries. Japan, obviously, have Rui Hashimura, so they'll be impacted. Nigeria, Spencer Dinwiddie. Did you know he's actually eligible to play for the Nigerian I did, team? even though he wasn't born there. It's mm. one of those ones. His da- but yeah, hey, his, we're his, hoping for Bryce Cotton. So, that's yeah. it. His dad was Nigerian. As, yeah. as well as Josh Okogi and Al Farouk Aminu. France, you've got Rudy Gobert, Evan Fournier, Frank Tilakina, Nicolas Batum. And then Spain have got Marc Gasol and... The Gasol brothers. I guess, I guess the uh, 86-year-old... Pau Gasol, Ricky Rubio, and Juan Hernan Gomez. And unfortunately for us as well, Ben Simmons, Patty Mills, Joe, Joe Ingles, and yeah. Aaron Baines will all be unavailable. And so. potentially a draftee or two too. Holy shit. Yeah. Yeah. In in a time when we thought we might finally have a medal chance. Nope. All right, let's get into the NBA Finals. And unfortunately, they have been a bit of a fizzer for a number of reasons. But I'll go through the games quickly. In Game 1, the Lakers 116 defeated Miami 98. Anthony Davis had 34-9. and James had 25-13-9. and A combined 36 minutes for Dragic and Bam due to injuries. That's the biggest story of that one. Game 2, the Lakers 124 defeated Miami 114, 32-14 this time for Davis, 33-9-9 for LeBron. Jimmy Butler had 25-8-13, and and Kelly Olynyk had a great game with 24-9. That continued in Game 3, this time a win for the Heat, which was today, 115, defeating the Lakers 104. Butler had 40-11-13, another great cameo by Olynyk with 17 for the shorthanded Heat. LeBron had 25-10-8. Davis only 15-5 and five on 9 shots this time. The Lakers lead 2-1. It was looking like a sweep. Fair, fair credit to Miami for getting the win today. I'm a little bit more optimistic than you. I, I think this, this series could actually still go 6 the way that I predicted before. Well, I predicted it too, and yeah, I hope so. Well, Jimmy Butler looked amazing. Anyway, we'll get to that. But Yeah, well, let's start from game one. But well, before I even get into that, I just wanted to give you a little bit of an idea of what was at stake before the series even started. So at the start of the series, there were only two players in NBA history to have won championships with three different teams. So Robert Ory with Houston, the Lakers, and San Antonio, and John Sally with Detroit, Chicago, and the Lakers. Sally's actually the only guy in NBA history to win titles with three teams in three different decades, Mm. which I thought was pretty cool. Mm. Uh, LeBron James and Danny Green could join them as guys that have won three, obviously. Danny Green in back-to-back years. Yes, Rajon Rondo was looking to join the late Clyde Lovellette as the only players to have won a championship with both the Lakers and Celtics. Mm. And LeBron just joined Bill Russell on 12, Sam Jones on 11, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar as the only guys to play in 10-plus NBA Finals. Um, interestingly, Miami was 75-1 to before the season started to make the NBA Finals, by far the worst odds of any team in the past 30 years to make it. Mm. And Dion Waiters is getting a ring no matter who wins because he was a laughable member of the Heat earlier in the season. I think we all remember him dropping a THC-laced gummy on the team plane and having a panic attack. <laughs> but yeah, what do you reckon about that? I mean, it shouldn't really matter because uh, you think the Lakers will still probably win it. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? So here in Australia, if you don't play in the AFL Grand Final, you don't get a, you know, you don't get anything. Get a medal. And in the NBA, you know, if you looked at the team in a championship year, you get a ring. So it's funny, isn't it? But I, I don't... Yeah, I think if, if you're on the opposition, 
I think that kind of loses your right to get one. And there's talk that he might even be able to get some of the finals money from Miami. Yeah, as no, well, that's ridiculous. Which they still that's, have to vote for. That's that, no, that's that's absurd. That's a joke. If yeah. you, if you're then if you change teams midstream, and by the way, he changed to the right one. It's he not did. from LA to Miami. He did. Then you know, of, of course, you've got to go with the team you're on. Surely, yeah. if you don't win, you don't get your ring. I've got a couple of other legacy things. Oh. Well, of course, LeBron against Pat Riley and the Heat. They ended in acrimonious terms after he went over there for the not three, not four, not five. Yeah, I mean, holy acrimony. Um, and Udonis Haslam's now been on an NBA Finals team in three separate decades. This is his sixth Finals appearance. And granted, he hasn't been playing minutes, but that's a pretty bloody good effort. Well, his coaching game too. Basically. Yeah, well, he gave that big rev up. Yeah, yeah. So that was interesting to see. So I guess we'll get into the games. I've got a few, I guess, key takeaways from Game 1. Now, obviously, this series was touted as a matchup of the league's best offense and one of the best defenses in Miami. Things actually started a little bit odd. So Jay Crowder defended Anthony Davis on the first possession, and LeBron saw Bam Adebayo, Jimmy Butler, and then Duncan Robinson on the first three trips down the court. So I was a bit unsure with what Miami were doing there. Early on, the Heat actually looked really good. They were forcing turnovers. They shot the ball well. They tore the Lakers apart with ball movement. And they had a 13-point lead at once. They did, 23-10 to 10 yep. behind the Dragic Adebayo pick and roll. Amazingly, the Lakers actually made their move with LeBron on the bench, and that was all sparked by a really positive-looking Cantavius Caldwell-Pope, who had 10 in the first quarter. I'll speak a little bit more about him later on. I know he didn't really do much more, finished with 13. But yeah, those threes from the corner and some free throws just kept LA in the game. LA just clamped down on defense from there, though. They were getting so many deflections. And just, if you look at the defenders they have, most of them have really good quick hands, whether it's KCP, Danny Green, Anthony Davis. They all recover really quickly on defense and get these nice strips and steals. So LeBron, They dominated the boards, too, 54-36. They did, yeah. As I mentioned, LeBron was on the bench for LA's 12-3 run as part of a 19-3 run to finish the first. They actually outscored the Heat 55-25, though, from that 23-10 lead that Miami had. Mm-hmm. It actually looked like the Heat threw a bit of a panic zone on the Lakers late in the second quarter, and LA just shot the lights out. They were 13 of 19 from three early in the third quarter, which is amazing. They kind of did a bit of a Houston on us, though. Went cold, missed their next 13. But they were just getting so many wide-open looks, and Anthony Davis playing in his first finals game was just dominant. LeBron in his 50th was amazing as well. It's only the second time in 10 tries, though, LeBron's been part of a Game 1 win in the NBA Finals. Yeah, he was 1-8 previously. I saw that as well. Yeah. They outscored them uh, 18-3 to start the third. So, really, the game was over pretty early in the third, especially with those injuries. Yep. As you mentioned, they were out-rebounded by 18. This is Miami. They took 13 less free throws than LA. And they've lost, obviously, two of their three biggest players. So, absolutely huge. Mark Jackson did make the point that it's a seven-game series and you can't lose four in one. But it, it really felt like they had, which was obviously not great. Well, it, I mean, that's yeah, that's that's an odd comment given the injuries. Mm. <laughs> I, I, can't, I don't know when that occurred, but... Yeah, exactly. Geez, it's hard when you're missing two of your three best players and your third rolled his ankle. Well, actually, they're two best plus-minus guys as well, so yeah, in terms go. of their most valuable players. And I guess the ankle wasn't too bad, because Jimmy's been amazing in games two and three. True. A couple of positives, I guess, to come out of game one. Kendrick Nunn actually got some court time. And played yeah, he had really 18 well. or something, didn't he? 18 on, yeah. on 8 of 11 in 20 minutes, which was great. He actually had an equal team-high five rebounds. Not a great sign. Yeah, no. But, with, uh, that's, again, with Bam injured. Yeah, but... Yeah, but yeah. after being a starter, he was buried on the bench, so that was a good... He did well to keep keep himself ready and, and turn up. He did. And they only had eight turnovers for the game as well, which is something that Miami's done quite well in this series. So 
The one really cool thing, though, that I did want to mention from that game, I did see a lot of ex-players in the virtual Oh, there's been tons, yeah. So, see if you can tell me the common link between all of these players. Oh, here we go. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Yep. Shaquille O'Neal. Yep. James Worthy. Yeah, well, Lakers so far. Pau Gasol. Lakers. Robert Ory. Gary Payton. It's Lakers. Bill Walton. Oh. Dirk Nowitzki. Clyde Drexler. Ray Allen. Paul Pierce. Dwayne Wade and Manu Ginobili. I've got it. They all have a vowel in their name. They do. Yes. No, all NBA champions. Ah, okay. Every single okay, one of them. Okay, yeah. If I'd listen more closely, yeah. Speaking yeah. of champions, I also saw broadcaster Robin Roberts, who is a phenomenal broadcaster, so great to see her there. And the greatest president of all time, Barack Obama. Oh, yes. He was in the crowd there, yeah. He was. Yeah. And Paul Pierce was there. There's been countless in the last few games. So yeah. many. Yeah. So game two, this was well and truly the point where it felt like I was right about Anthony Davis winning finals MVP. 66 points through two games, put him only behind Kareem and Shaq for most points in their first two finals games with the Lakers. He had whatever he wanted, lots of shots close to the basket. Yep. Amazing shooting percentage. Yep. LeBron was actually brewing as, as well, 33-9-9 as you mentioned, zero turnovers. The only other player in playoff history with 20 points, nine assists and zero turnovers is Magic Johnson. Mm. But yeah, AD was just unstoppable. 26 of 41 for those 66 points across those two games, 63.4%. So yep. he's shooting the lights out. He had a lot of dunks, a lot of shots close to the basket. He did, but he was shooting... And with no bam defending him. You well, know. he shot the jump shot really well. Yeah, well, he which, did. He, which, he, I mean, he played... I don't want to take anything away from him. He no, played magnificently well. And but, and uh, Miles Leonard sighting, by the way. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, unfortunately, Kelly Olenek took most of the minutes at the five, but Miles Leonard did start the game, played the first nine minutes. I don't even know if God himself could have had much of an impact on no. the on it. Do you think he should have do you think Leonard should have got a few minutes earlier in the playoffs to prepare him for this situation? Potentially. I mean I, I guess you can't really predict that Adebayo is gonna go out, but yeah, there were so many close games, I think they just kind of needed to go with their, their guns and unfortunately Leonard was a cheerleader. Yeah, they did sweep a series and they won another pretty pretty comfortably though they were maybe good they looked good on the um, yeah. yeah it's a bit like the Lakers in Denver exactly yeah. exactly the thing about game two though was Miami played really well I mean it was a massive task without Adebayo and Dragic but they they played amazingly if you look at some of their numbers Miami actually shot a 50-40-90 for that game wow so that's not easy to do. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll counter this when you're finished. Miami's offensive rating at one, uh, certainly at one stage during the game, was in the 120s, which is phenomenal. Mm. Unfortunately for them, LA's was in the 140s though. They were just shooting the lights out. I mean, the Lakers shot nearly 51% from the field. They actually hit 16 straight two-point attempts, bridging the first and third quarters, mm. which is nuts. And they had 26 more shots from Miami because of all the offensive rebounds and a heap of second-chance points. Miami kept it close, though. 31-10 to 10 advantage in free throws made. And as you mentioned, Kelly Olynyk was superb. But it just seemed like every time Miami got close, the Lakers would hit one of those timely threes. Well, to me, it felt like the Lakers were in fourth gear the whole game. And if they wanted to, they could have, they could have actually gone into a next gear. So for me, it felt like they let Miami hang around a little bit. Mm. Yeah, this is probably a good point. So I, I actually felt like the Lakers had it under control the whole time. No, yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. A couple of little tidbits to finish off that game. Tyler Hero got the start for Miami, became the youngest player ever to start a finals game at 20 years and 256 days. Eight days younger than a guy that we keep mentioning. Magic Johnson. Johnson. Yep. And Tony Parker's actually third in the 2003 series against New Jersey at 21 years and 18 days. Oh, yeah. Now, the Lakers haven't given up a 2-0 lead since the 1969 finals against Boston. It's also the first time a LeBron James-led team has had a 2-0 lead in the finals. Mm. 
Now, today's game, what can you say? Well, 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 signs of life. So, yes, and I've got to say, this is why I picked LeBron to be MVP, because I felt like in the losses, Davis might be a little bit under par, and I felt like LeBron would be consistent the whole way through, even in the losses, to counter your comment about Davis. Either of them could win. Hmm. Yeah, but that's why I went with LeBron for my MVP. No, pick. no, that's, that's fair enough. So, obviously, we've got to talk Jimmy Butler first. Oh, yeah. Jimmy's triple-double came on 70% shooting, yep. 14 of 20. Have a guess at how many other guys have had a 40-point triple-double on 70% shooting since they kept those stats. Oh, it wouldn't be many. Maybe one. It's actually four, okay. which is surprisingly high, but I guess when okay. you consider some of the guys. But Chris Webber did it in 1995, Charles Barkley in 93, Magic did it in 1981, and Wilt Chamberlain in 66, 67, and 68. Yeah, see, I would have guessed Wilt would have been on my short list. Jimmy's was the first, though, in the finals, and only the second in the playoffs. Barkley had 43, 15, and 10 in Game 5 against Seattle in the conference finals. He actually also had 44 and 24 in their Game 7. <laughs> <laughs> which is ridiculous. So, look, I haven't actually seen this game because of... Me work, neither, yeah. But I'm really looking forward to seeing how Miami held Davis to just nine shots. That's probably the key for Miami moving forward. They can't let LeBron and AD beat them. Force the supporting cast to make shots. Do you know Danny Green is 5 of 23 in the three games and 4 of 20 from deep? Mm. Caldwell Pope, 8 of 29 and 5 of 20 from three-point land. So just make someone else make some shots. If Green, KCP, Alex Caruso make six threes in a game... You tip your hat and say, well done. But you can't let AD go for 35. LeBron's, no. I mean, even LeBron's numbers, they looked good, 25, 10, and 8, but he had eight turnovers. Yeah, after none in the previous game, as you mentioned. Yeah. Look, Dragic isn't coming back. He's got a torn plantar fascia. They need Bam back. They need him back. And hopefully he has some signs of life. Even if he can only give you 20 minutes and maybe even six fouls, they need him to have any chance. But I, I don't think the Lakers lose another one. I Okay, here's here's why I think there's potentially some hope. So I mentioned before the 50-40-90 shooting. They actually had a 50-35-90 in Game 3 as well. So they're shooting the ball really, really well. And Duncan Robinson and Tyler Hero... Oh, they have some great three-point shooters. they've shot poorly through yeah. the whole yeah, series. They, yeah. So if, if one or both of those guys catches fire... Still, how do you defend the big, though, you know? That's the thing. Well, Davis down low. Well, they double him and force someone else to make yeah, shots. Yeah, I mean, prove me wrong, but I don't think... They're going to win Look, I, game. I still agree with you, but I think they've actually potentially found an avenue. Hopefully. And, and they've hopefully. Got, they've got to keep going with it. Have they been persisting with the zone too much? Now, again, we haven't seen game three. We've only seen one and two. But they were destroying them in that zone in game two. The they were playing with the zone the in zone game The zone is okay depending on who you're forcing to take shots. But anyway, we'll, we'll see how that goes in game we four. We certainly will. Really quick talking point to finish this off. What do you think about LeBron walking off the court before the game's over? Yeah, I don't like it. Hmm. I don't like it. There's actually technically a rule that states that the league could suspend him for it. I know wow. they they absolutely oh, will, not, will be amazing. They will not do it. Yeah. But I mean, do you think it's a fine? Oh yeah, yeah. It's disrespectful. I don't like it at all. What do you reckon? Twenty five thousand. Oh, I I don't know, but it's it's. Um, well, that's chump change to him. Sixty five billion. There. Yeah, I I I don't like it. But but what I do like in game one when the Lakers were up by I think twenty five to thirty, Howard started acting the fool. Davis started to get a bit cocky, and LeBron actually like put him in their place mm. and told him to shut the hell up. And do you know what? I've been in this situation before against Dallas, and we actually lost. Yeah. So I did like that from LeBron. I don't like the walking away from LeBron. Just quickly before we move on, just have to say one more thing. Oh. Fucking jack jumpers. Seriously. <laughs> and now, this week in sport history. 
So we'll start off on October the 1st, 1932. Babe Ruth made the legendary call. He was being sledged by the Cubs' dugout. He pointed to centre field before homering into the Wrigley Field bleachers in the fifth inning in Game 3 of the World Series. The Yankees went on to win at 7-5. What an amazing image, which was used in the Simpsons baseball game as well. Which is how we first know about it. Exactly. Yeah. October 1, 1975, the thriller in Manila. Muhammad Ali stops Joe Frazier in 14 rounds in the Philippines to retain his WBC, WBA heavyweight title. Sticking with the 1st of October, it was a great day this one. Yeah. In 1988, Steffi Graf beats Gabriella Sabatini 6-3-6-3 to win the women's singles tennis gold medal at the Seoul Olympics, clinching the first and only Golden Slam in history. That's winning the Grand Slam in a calendar year and the Olympic gold medal. Amazing. Yeah, and I thought it was Atlanta in 96. So there you go. October 2, 1876, British Open Men's Golf St. Andrews. Bob Martin wins when fellow Scott Davy Strath refuses to take part in a playoff after the pair finish on 176. I don't want to play anymore. I've had enough. Yeah, I'm, going I'm taking <laughs> my clubs and going home. You can have the win. Yeah, what ridiculous. Jeez. Now we'll finish off on October the 5th, 1950, and this is an absolute cracker of a story and something that even as an NBA historian, I didn't realize. Boston Celtics owner Walter Brown and coach Red Arback draw lots out of a hat for three members of the defunct Chicago Stags franchise and hit the jackpot with future six-time champion Bob Cousy. Mm. So when Cousy turned pro and declared for the 1950 draft, the Celtics had just finished the 1949-50 season with a 22-46 and win-loss record. They actually had the first draft pick, which is not surprising with such a rubbish record. Mm. They were expected to pick Cousy, but Red Arback snubbed him for a center named Charlie Share saying, am I supposed to win or please the local yokels? Oh. So, a bit, of, a bit unusual there from, from our back. Cousy was drafted by the Tri-City Blackhawks, who we've spoken about before, one of the hilarious names. But Cousy was actually trying to set up a driving school in Worcester, Massachusetts, and didn't want to move to the Midwestern Triangle. Cousy demanded a salary of $10,000 as compensation for having to give up the driving school. Owner Ben Kerner only offered him 6000 so Cousy just said, eh, I'm not going to report. Mm. I've had enough. Yep. Cousy was then picked up by the Chicago Stags, but they folded, and League Commissioner Maurice Potolov declared three Stags would be available for a dispersal draft. Team scoring leader Max Zaslowski, Andy Phillip, and Cousy. The Celtics, Knicks, and Philadelphia Warriors, as they were known then, were the three teams that were invited. Brown later admitted that he was hoping for Zaslowski would have tolerated Phillip and <laughs> didn't want Cousy. Oh, wow. So when the Celtics drew Cousy, he confessed, I could have fallen to the floor. Brown reluctantly gave him a $9,000 salary and the rest is history. And there's a long list of blokes who have refused to turn up to teams that have drafted them too. So John Elway did it to the Cleveland Browns. Eli Manning did it to the um, San Diego Chargers. And that's just a t- couple off the top of my head. So, Koozie, add him to the list. What an amazing story, though. Yeah, crazy. This week in sport history. Jeez, there's a lot going on at the French Open, isn't there, Stewie? Yeah, geez, we're into the second week now. It has been well and truly full of news, controversy, and utter carnage. We'll run through some of the big stories and maybe take a look at the action towards the back end. We've got to start with the most recent talking point, though, the COVID concerns surrounding Alex Zverev. Zverev. Yeah. So, he got knocked out by Italian young gun Yannick Sinner. And I must say, I'm so proud of myself for picking him as, as Ah, you champ. did too, He's yes. Done amazingly yeah, well. well done, well done. But Sverev mentioned in the post-match interview, I'm completely sick after the match with Cecinato in the night. Yeah, what can I say? I'm completely sick. I can't really breathe, as you can hear by my voice. I had fever, you know, as well. So yeah, I'm not in the best physical state. 
I think that had a little bit of an effect on the match today. It was 38 degrees, it was 38 in the night, and I shouldn't have played today. A lot of players have been whining about how cold it's been and how they've been struggling in the cold. Because that's 38 Fahrenheit, of course. No, that's Celsius. Oh. So they've had a, some random heat wave, apparently. Really? Which I didn't realize. I didn't realize. I thought they were. Oh, well, earlier in the week they were saying it was cold, and now they're. There you go. Yeah. Far out. So, okay. But can you imagine this shit show if he tests positive? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, it doesn't bode well, does it? Yeah. I mean, it's but pretty reckless. They almost have to shut down the tournament. It's nuts. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's crazy. We go back to the first big story chronologically, though. It came in a match between Christina Mladenovic of, of France and Laura Siegmund of Germany. Leading 5-1 in the first set, and with a set point, Mladenovic hit a beautiful drop shot, and it looked all over. But Siegerman raced to the net, hit this crazy dink back, and Mladenovic running into the net to hit her ball back conceded the point when she actually hit the net. But Mladenovic pointed out that Siegerman's shot had come after the ball had bounced twice, which replays easily confirmed. And worse still, Siegerman went on to win 12 of the next 15 games to win the match, 7-5-6-3. Mladenovic mm. has a history of throwing away leads. I mean, she threw away a 6-1-5-1 lead to lose at the US Open. But this would have wreaked havoc with her head. You've got a challenge system where Hawkeye shows a ball being in or out. Why can't you have a central team that can check for these under a challenge system? There wouldn't be that many. Mm. And this is the only one of those I... Oh, yeah. Of. With all the modern technology, that stuff shouldn't be happening. It's, it's just a joke. Plain and simple. Yeah, I don't understand that. Mm. Also in the ladies' draw, there was a huge controversy during the second round clash between Kiki Burtons of the Netherlands and Italian Sarah Arani. At points during the match, Burtons complained of cramps in various parts of her body. This is what we were talking about earlier with the cramps. <laughs> yeah. Arani claimed, however, that she was faking it. At one point, even feigning a cramp herself before walking back to serve as a bit of a, mm. a, bit of a piss take. Yep. The match included 10 consecutive breaks of serve in the third set, and Irani just lost her serve, ended up serving underarm for most of the third set before Burton's took the decider 9-7. Oh, did a bit of a curious. Eh? She did a bit. Mm. But she was doing it because she couldn't get her overhead serves going in. Burton's was then taken from the court in a wheelchair while Irani left the court screaming a fairly loud obscenity in Italian. And mm. she was furious, saying that Burton's looked completely fine in the hotel about an hour later. So going to be very tense the next time they play. That's very weird, isn't it? Mm. Speaking of the matches, geez, I've I've had bloody good luck with tennis lately. Obviously, I saw that Novak thing live uh, at a ridiculous hour, and this one was fairly ridiculous too, and again on a school night. There were a number of circumstances that led me to that situation I wouldn't have otherwise been watching. But anyway, I happened to see the, uh, the Denis Shapovalov and Gil Simon match. Uh, Gil Simon, former world number six in his own right, pretty bloody good player. Decent, yeah. Shapovalov, a good up-and-comer young, young kid. But it all turned to shit in the second set, and that's when I turned it on. So, Simon actually uh, had several set points. And there was one where the umpire, the chair umpire called one... Now, I can't remember if it was out or in, but in any rate, it went in Simon's favour. And Simon actually admitted, he actually said, nah, check the spot, like, I shouldn't win that point. So, good karma, right? Mm. Wrong. He then lost the next, I think, four or five games and then the set and had just a ridiculous implosion, constantly talking to himself after every point, really loudly, like almost maniacally. It was it was quite a sight to behold. And then there was another one later. And look, I'm not sure it was it was right anyway, but he had a big set at the umpire again, got her out of the chair, got her to look at the spot and said, look, I gave him a set point, you know, please. He was pleading with her. And of course, she was like, nah, sorry, mate. Not going to happen. 
And in the end, he only uh, took one set and lost the match. So, but yeah, I, I actually, I ended up watching the whole set because after I saw him concede the point and saw the kind of mental breakdown beginning to happen, I thought, geez, it doesn't matter how late it is. I've got to see this set out. Mm-hmm. I've got to see if he loses this. And sure enough, he Simor did. So yeah, weird, weird set of events, that one. And moving back to the women, obviously we had Serena Williams pull out of the tournament about an hour prior to her second round match because of an ongoing Achilles injury. She hasn't made a single Grand Slam final this year for the first time since 2006. Mm. That clock is well and truly ticking. I can't see her breaking Margaret Court's record with all that's going on. She's 39. She doesn't seem as dominant as she once was. It's a shame, really, because she has to go down as the best of all time, certainly in the women's game. She has confirmed she's coming to the Australian Open, as has Fed. So there's start, some big names are starting to, to declare for the Australian Open. So she will get her chance. It would be fitting for her to beat Margaret Court in Australia. On her own court. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, maybe it's maybe it's good she pulled out that this would time. Be brutal. Yeah. And then we also had an incident where a reporter was asking Gregor Dimitrov about his relationship with Maria Sharapova, which ended five years ago. It got super creepy. He basically said, I was always quite jealous of you, and then asked Gregor what Maria is doing. The guy sounded like a massive stalker and probably should have his media credentials taken away. And then the other good thing is that Barty's retained her number one spot, and she was, of course, seen at the uh, the Tigers and Lions match supporting the Richmond Tigers in the crowd there, even though she's a Queenslander, Adam I believe. Yeah, um, and she hasn't played tennis all year, but she's retained her number one spot because Halep had a second-round loss. Yep, which we'll, we'll get to in just oh, a second. Oh, sorry, I've jumped the gun. No, that's okay. The other really interesting topic, though, Novak Djokovic actually makes a bit of sense for once. He's arguing that the line judges probably don't need to be positioned on the court given all the technology that we have available. It's it's an interesting point. Unfortunately, it's probably a little bit on the nose because he made the call after he... You well, of course, yeah. Well, well, you've got after, to look at his intent. It probably would have been a little bit less on the nose, though, if he'd made the call before smashing a line judge in the throat with a Wilson High altitude, though. So, <laughs> not, not great. So, yeah, you alluded to, obviously... Simona Harlett being knocked out. We have to get into the carnage of the draws. So obviously, Seeds dropping like flies. Absolutely. So Halep bowing out 6-1-6-2 to an unseeded Polish woman, Iga Swiatek, who's actually knocked out Halep, Eugenie Bouchard, and Marketa Vondrausova in a really huge week for her. The two-seed Karolina Pliskova was knocked out by an unseeded Latvian, Yelena Ostapenko. She actually won the French three years ago, so not as big a deal. After the drama with Sarah Irani, Kiki Burtons was knocked out by an unseated Italian, Martina Trevisan. And it continues like that. Amazingly, only the three seed, four seed, seven seed, and 30 seed are left in the women's draw, Mm. which is just nuts. In the men's, I mean, four seed Daniel Medvedev was knocked out in the first round to unseeded Hungarian Marton Fukovic. It's kind of the theme, isn't it? Mm. Unseeded players. Mm. Alex Ferev was knocked out in the fourth round by, by Yannick COVID-19. Sinner. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, and, and, but also by Yannick Sinner, who was unseated. Mm. Seventh seed Matteo Berrettini lost. Did they the shake team. hands after the match, by the way? No, they're just tapping rackets. Yeah, that's now, just as well. Which is, which is not great. Based anyway. on Zverev's health. Well, true. Yeah. But then, yeah, Matteo Berrettini lost in the third round to unseated German Daniel Altmaier. And then unseeded Kazakh, Alexander Bublik, beat Gael Monfils, the eighth seed. It's just crazy how many mm. of these big seeds are being knocked out by unseeded players. Yep. On the plus side, though, in the men's draw, everything's kind of going well for the top seeds. Novak Djokovic and Rafael Nadal haven't dropped a set. Dominic Team hadn't dropped a set until yesterday. He was actually taken to five sets by, shock horror, unseeded Frenchman Hugo Gaston. Honestly, bring on week two. Indeed. If you have a question for the sport blokes, email them sportblokes at gmail.com or find them on Twitter at sportblokes. 
please also like, rate and subscribe. Tell your friends. Yep. Now, Stewie, I think you had an interesting county cricket story before we get into the women's matches. Yeah, so Essex had just won the Bob Willis Trophy after a draw with Somerset and were celebrating on the balcony at Lords. Really unlike English cricketers to celebrate something that doesn't actually constitute a victory, though, isn't it? <laughs> but they were seen happily pouring beers all over each other, including oh, Feroz yeah, Kushi, yeah. who's a devout Muslim. Yeah, and he was clearly not happy with it. Oh, exactly. He was very uncomfortable. You could see him cowering in the corner yeah, of the balcony, trying, yeah. to, trying to look comfortable with something he clearly wasn't. Yeah. So anyone who understands anything about the, their faith knows that very few of them have anything to do with alcohol at all. And this guy just did not want to be there. And it's not the first time it's happened in English cricket recently. True. Yeah. Very true. Yeah. Their club captain, Tom Wesley, actually issued a statement apologising for the incident. I did actually notice, though, that he apologised for anyone who took offence to it. Might have been nice to maybe address the guy who was impacted by it. It's obviously disappointing to see this stuff still happening in 2020. You can crack the beers in the room. You don't need to crack it on the balcony, you know? You it, Let everyone enjoy the celebration on the balcony, have a bit of a hug, crack the beers in the back rooms. Exactly. Then or, everyone's happy. Or if you're going to do that, do the champagne thing, but shoot it out forwards. I don't know. He's, well, he just looks so awkward. Yeah. It was really, it was a bit of a shame, really. He really did. Uh, but anyway, okay, let's get into uh, the ladies' cricket. Now, as you mentioned, we did have a loss in the third T20i. And that's not surprising when you see that our top scorer was Ash Gardner with 29 off 21. For the Kiwis, Tahuhu had Tufa and Kerr had Tufa. In reply, they got to the 125 fairly easily. Again, no one with big scores because they didn't really need them, but Satterthwaite had 30 off 25. Yeah, I mentioned I didn't actually see this one. Look, it's hard for Australia to win anything when Alyssa Healy, Beth Mooney and Rachel Haynes combined for 22. It was never going to be... And without Elise Perry. Well, that too is, you know, but look, 123 is never going to be enough, especially against a team that you've beaten 13 straight times who is dying to beat you. So a little bit of talk though about, look, as good as Megan Shoot is, maybe Georgia Wareham should have bowled the last over. You just never know though. Yeah. Always easy to second guess these yeah, things. Exactly. Wasn't a big enough score. Anyway, on to the ODIs. Yeah, the ODIs. So I got to see a decent amount of this on Saturday, actually. But it was a bit disappointing because the New Zealand women only managed 180. Again, you know, no really scores of note. I'm not even going to mention them. Really good spread of wickets. Every person that bowled picked up a wicket. Three of the ladies had two each. The other three had one each, which is really excellent. Haynes had 44. Lenny had a 62 not out, and Australia got to their 181 in a canter in the 34th over. Yeah, I think the key to this one was winning the toss. We sent New Zealand in on a pitch that offered a little bit for the spinners. We actually got to see the excitement of Annabelle Sutherland being unleashed in her first match. She is seriously quick, that girl. She's going to be great for us for, for quite a few years. But yeah, as you mentioned, everyone took a wicket. The The trio of Wareham, Jonathan, and Molyneux took six between them. New Zealand... Yeah, they were given nothing, and the result was that five of the top six Kiwi batters were out with strike rates below 50, punctuated by Amelia Kerr's 7 off 32. Mm. So just no no real urgency, no real rotation of strike, which is obviously a key in, in 50 over stuff. So there's a little bit of a, a late resistance from Maddie Green, who had three sixes in her 35, but yeah, 180 was never going to be even close. Rachel Haynes and Beth Mooney were magnificent. Mooney goes past 1,000 runs against New Zealand at an average of 63.8. It's fairly impressive. It's incredible. Something very interesting, though, that was brought up in the telecast was that Haynes, just like me, because I'm a lefty and I love, love playing the pull and hook shot, hmm. 
She's one who plays them so well, but like me, she struggles with the drive and cut sometimes, so maybe something that the Kiwis could look at in the future. Real sour note, though, Susie Bates damaging her shoulder on a dive, and she's unfortunately done for the rest of the series. She is, yeah. Yep, she's that's what I was going to mention. Real shame. Yes, and uh, as a result, they put up a bit more of a fight, but it was still a comfortable win to the Aussies. Uh, some better scores, though. Divine had a 79, albeit off 115 balls. Satterthwaite had a better strike rate, 69 off 73. For the Aussies, Jonathan picked up four. Molyneux and Shoot had two each. And then Meg Lanning had a magnificent 101 not out. Rachel Haynes also with an 82 off 89. Look, New Zealand were a lot better in this. Their intent was much better. They were a little bit more aggressive. They put together, obviously, a, a really competitive score. As you mentioned, Sophie Devine was, was fantastic. She had a really masterful innings. Amy Satterthwaite's aggression was something that we haven't really seen up until now. But from two for 193 with seven overs left, Australia managed to slow things down a little bit. Jonathan was magnificent with her four wickets. Look, good teams are able to refocus the way that the Aussies did towards that, that end of that innings. And the result was that New Zealand probably left 15 to 20 runs on the park. I mean, Alyssa Healy copped a beauty from Devine early. That, that was a, an absolute peach of a delivery. But Rachel Haynes is 82 and that ton from Meg Lanning, the, the Aussies just kind of cruised. The six wickets they lost kind of made it look a little bit closer than it was. But I will say this, I was actually watching this as I was walking towards my car out and about in, in the CBD and they nearly stuffed it up. Nicola Carey accidentally hit a beautiful cover drive for four. So she couldn't get the ton. Which, yeah, well, she needed three runs yeah, and, and yeah. They, they only needed two. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're very fortunate that she actually managed to make it. But And it was her 14th ODI ton, by the way. Yeah, she's actually the quickest ever to 14 ODI centuries, two ahead of Hashim Amala. Mm. So she really is Mrs. Bradman. In yeah, that, in yeah, that, well, that there's some people have been making those, yeah. Yeah, and she also has the highest average of any Aussie in run chases at over 67.8, just ahead of Jimmy Faulkner on 66. And the four-wicket victory also gave them a chance to equal the world record of consecutive ODI wins held by the 2003 Ponting-led men's team. Yeah, just one behind. They're looking pretty good. You'd expect them to wrap that up in the, the next match. The last time the Kiwis actually held the Rose Bowl was in 1999 before Anna, Annabelle Sutherland was even born. Wow. So, pretty decent period of, of dominance. Yes, the yeah. Well, it's almost like around the time when the men stopped dominating, the women have <laughs> really taken the mantle, yeah, haven't they? Exactly right. Another marathon show once again, Stewie, as we do at the end. What are you apt for? God, where do you start? I mean, game four of the NBA finals that all of a sudden looks like it could be okay. Yeah, still not convinced. And then the Aussie women, obviously, we've just spoken about... Can they get that record of 21? Can they break that record of 21 for most one-day wins of all time consecutively? The second week of the French Open's looking juicy. And I haven't even gotten to the AFL. Yeah, look, <laughs> so. this week it's the AFL for me. I often dodge the obvious. I like to be a bit different. But no, I'm definitely amped. After week one, I'm really excited to see. Okay, I don't have a lot of optimism for the Richmond St Kilda game, but I think the Geelong-Collingwood game will be an absolute cracker. Can't wait. Until next time, I'm Nath. And I'm Stu. We are the Sportplex. Yeah.